So Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus on one occasion is giving his very first message, and uh, he is giving to us this sermon uh, while he is on a mountain. And he has his disciples there, his followers there, but there are scribes and Pharisees, and they're all listening to his message. And so I think what Jesus is really focused on in the entire Sermon on the Mount is that he wants his followers, especially his disciples, to mature and to grow spiritually. And that's what he's focused on. Now, I want you to take note that because Jesus is bringing his sermon to a dramatic conclusion, uh, he has just instructed them in chapter uh, 7, his students, that they are to seek the narrow way that they are to uh, knock on uh, this, this straight gate, that he is uh, giving them final warnings, so to speak, about ingenuineness and insincerity. And he talks to them about how they are to build their life on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, and when the storms come, their life is going to uh, make it. They've built their life on a strong foundation, and they're going to stand. But he contrasts that with those individuals who are not listening truly to the Sermon on the Mount. They're not building their life uh, on the rock, Jesus Christ, but rather they're building their life on the sand. The same storms of life come, and because they don't know Jesus, because they haven't built their life on, on Jesus Christ and his word, when those storms come, Their lives uh, really are a wreck. They're all messed up. And so he concludes by really giving to us uh, the reaction of the crowd, not just the crowd in regards to his followers, but all those who have been listening. I want you to notice in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, here's how this this sermon, in essence, concludes. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I want you to recognize that Jesus wants all of us as his followers to grow, to mature spiritually. We talk a lot about psychological material. There's all kinds of studies and so forth. My dissertation at Syracuse University was on the psychological maturity of college students. And uh, we looked at all kinds of different issues in regards to this issue of, of psychological maturity. And God wants us to grow spiritually, he wants us to be mature spiritually. And uh, I think that what Jesus is telling us, not only in this account, but throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is that we need to be spiritually mature. Now, what's involved in that? Well, I think, first of all, and I think this is one of the reasons why we have the Sermon on the Mount, is that we need to know what we believe. That's where it all starts. We hear, and uh, we need to uh, make sure that our brains are engaged, and we need, as mature Christians, to know what we believe. When we look at how the crowd responded to Jesus, I I think there were scribes and Pharisees and uh, individuals who heard him, and and they kind of understood even the content of what he was teaching. But it's not enough just to know what you believe. 
The second issue is this, and Jesus deals with this, that you need to know why you believe it. And so it's not only what you believe, but why do you believe it? The third thing, and clearly the scribes and the Pharisees really overlook this. And the third thing is this, that we not only need to know what we believe and why we believe it, but we need to know how to live it. And so here were scribes and Pharisees who even knew the Old Testament. They could teach the Old Testament. They they knew all the facts in the Old Testament, the content of the Old Testament, but it really never reached their hearts. And because it never reached their hearts, it, it never impacted their behavior, at least the way Jesus wanted it to. And so the fourth thing, though, is important in regards to spiritual maturity. We need to know what we believe, We need to know why we believe it. We need to know how to live it. And we need to know how to share it. And so when we know the truth of God's word and we know understand salvation, maturity means that we can share it with other people. And so you and I need to realize that what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you know, these are difficult issues. And if you're not a believer, if you don't have the Spirit of God indwelling you and and the grace of Almighty God working you, you you can't just obey this. But Jesus is giving us teaching and, and he's showing us what the proof is of genuine faith and what the proof is of those who really do not have a genuine faith in God and, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think that if we look at these two verses, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, you know, when Jesus finished his sayings, I don't know how long it took him. Maybe it took him 25 weeks, who knows? Um, But uh, Jesus finished the sayings and the crowds, they were astonished at his teaching. And uh, then they said, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I think what the the scribes would often teach and they would say, it is written. Jesus did that even in chapter 4 when he was tempted of Satan. How did he deal with the temptations of Satan? He would quote the Old Testament and Jesus would actually say to Satan, it is written. And so when the scribes taught, Pharisees taught, when we teach, we we say it is written. But when you look at chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus doesn't say it is written. He says this, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so the scribes recognize this and that he spoke as he was the original lawgiver on the mountain in the Old Testament. That he gave the impression to all of these, this crowd that he was clarifying his own instructions in the Mosaic Law. And so they were taken back. Man, the authority by which he taught. Now, I I want you to realize that when Jesus gave Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he was correcting them. He was instructing his followers. And I'm sure that maybe his followers and, and, hey, maybe even uh, the scribes and the Pharisees who he was correcting, felt that Jesus was scolding them. Do you ever feel scolded? I want you to know that when I, when I, every, I, I can say this honestly before God, that when I, I never do a message here at this church in which I have a or even a number of individuals in mind. 
And if anybody gets scolded when I, uh, you know, am preparing, it's me. But I can tell you this, if you never feel scolded, then you're in trouble because when God gives us his word, we ought to feel convicted or scolded by him when we're not doing or believing what he has given to us. And so, you know, I'm sure that, that some of the crowd felt that he, you know, he was scolding them and, and uh, you know, that this wasn't good. But when Jesus taught, when he preached, we, we need to realize that his words were, first of all, immutable. That's a theological term, immutability. They talk about the immutability of God in regards to an attribute or perfection of his, but they also talk about immutability when, it talk, when they talk about the word of God. And what do they mean when, when God's word is immutable? Well, it's fixed. It, it, it is unchangeable. It's established. It's established in heaven forever and ever. God's word never changes. Now, we hear people today, don't we, who give their word one day, and the next day it's totally different, and the next day it's, it's even different than the first two times. That's not God's word. It's immutable. It is fixed. Well, God's word also, and I think this is what took the, the scribes back as well, that it wasn't only immutable, but he was teaching them that his word was eternal. It was settled in heaven forever and ever. And that's why we talk about how God's word is absolute, objective truth. And so the only truth that we really have is God's word. We have a lot of information. We have a lot of knowledge. And, and, and some of that knowledge isn't uh, you know, necessarily uh, evil or, or wrong. But our knowledge changes. The more we investigate things, the more we survey things, the more you know, we, we uh, study things, we learn more and more about even our earth and, and everything that's on it. And you should be really thankful if, that you have a doctor today, a medical doctor today, that's not going by medical books of 50 years ago. Did they give us... False information 50 years ago? No, but they didn't know what we know today. Now, here's the difference, though. God's word is not just knowledge or information. It is eternal truth. That's why we can base our whole world and life on his word. You know, notice what he has to say then in chapter 7. Um, in uh, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so when we grab hold of God's truth and we realize that it's immutable, that it is eternal, that we can build our life on it. So that's really the third thing that when God uh, gives us his word, it's not only immutable and it's eternal, but it's binding on all of us. Whether you accept it or not, it is binding because it is, it is God's truth. And when we talk about God's word being uh, binding on us all, it means that it's irrevocable, that it's, it's legally required or prohibited, and we have to accept it. So with that in mind then, here are individuals that are in this crowd. They've heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. And they've responded. Now what we find in these, these verses, especially then, that there was a, a, probably a majority of people who when they heard this sermon were amazed and were in awe. 
That's not bad, by the way. But I'm here to tell you that's not enough. And so they were astonished. They weren't astonished. It doesn't tell us that they were astonished at the message itself. It doesn't say that they were astonished at, at uh, you know, the content and what he was telling them that they needed to do. What they were astonished at was his, his teaching, how he did it with such authority. I think that the response here of being amazed and in awe was that it hit their heads, but it never hit their hearts. And so they were, they were amazed. They, they were in awe of how he teach, taught. He, they were dumbfounded, the word means. It means that they were astonished. They were amazed at his teaching, his doctrine. Um, and uh, the tense of the word here that is used is that they were amazed for a certain period of time, but not for very long. And so they were amazed. They were in awe. They, they thought, you know, this was an impressive preacher, speaker, teacher. They were impressed with his new concepts, with the authority by which he taught. But that was not enough to just be astonished. And so we know, because we continue to read the book of Matthew, that the crowd included those who were followers of his, not just the Pharisees and and the scribes, so his followers not only were amazed and in awe at his teaching, but they accepted it and they acted on it, and that's the key. So God's word has to go from our heads to our hearts to our hands. What we believe has to impact our behavior. And so they, they were, you know, individuals then who realized that this was Jesus was teaching with absolute authority. He was clarifying in, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, his own inner intentions as it related to the Mosaic law. And so God's word must move from our heads to our hearts to our hands. And our beliefs must impact our behavior. Now, what I want to do this morning is kind of relook at the entire sermon. Now, I promise you, we won't be here that long. If you have your apps, you'll note that there's a lot of notes on that app. And some of you who take notes and don't have that app, after today, you're going to wish you had the app. So you can get to that app uh, even after the service because all of the verses and, and points. Somebody told me I had 26 points. Now, that means I hope you guys brought your lunch, if that's true, right? But that's, that's not the case. But I want you to realize that what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the response issue, that he's dealing first with Pharisaic righteousness and how it's manifested in uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. What, what he's saying to them is that here is proof that you're not a true follower of mine. This is proof that you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. Here's proof that you really do not have genuine faith. And so there's a whole list of things that Jesus condemns. But then he tells us what are the characteristics, what he's looking for, what is proof of uh, genuine faith. 
of those individuals who have truly accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, before I list some of these, let's realize that Jesus in in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not saying, if you follow all of these things, if you stop doing this, and if you start doing this, you're going to make it to heaven. He's he's not teaching a work salvation in any way, shape, or form. Here's what he's saying. That if you've truly accepted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, now what does that mean? It means that we understand that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that he came to this earth with the express purpose of going to the cross of Calvary, suffering there, shedding his blood, giving his very life to pay for the penalty of my sins and your sins. And when we accept what Jesus did for us personally, then we have the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of eternal life, And just like the man who built his house on the rock, we have new meaning and purpose in life. Once we have really put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then the grace of Almighty God works in us and helps us to produce what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus wants us to know that it's all by grace. It's all by the power of the Spirit of God working in us. And that we cannot produce this all on our own, no matter how hard you try. And so here he begins, and I I want you to follow me carefully but quickly this morning as we think about the Pharisaic righteousness manifested in what Jesus is telling. It begins in Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to realize that what Jesus is saying is that if you're involved in these things and there's no change in you, then you need to really question whether you're a true follower. And those who practice these things are not going to participate in the kingdom of God. And he tells us, first of all, he talks about hateful dispositions. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Well, really, in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you, have not, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to, uh, to the uh, hell of fire. And so here's what he's saying, that if you're an unbeliever, If you don't have genuine faith, then you have a hateful disposition and your your hearts are filled with anger and bitterness. How often have we talked about anger and bitterness? And if we harbor it, it's going to mess up our entire lives and our testimony. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says this, get rid of all anger and bitterness. And so he deals with that. Then he talks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, uh, about lustful eyes. And so what were the Pharisees and Sadducees saying? Well, you know, we didn't commit adultery, and if you don't commit adultery, you're fine. And Jesus is saying, you know, look at your hearts. You, you have a lustful heart and a lustful eye. And, and you need, if, if you have a lustful heart and eye, then internally in your heart, it's like you've committed adultery. So what is he saying here? Well, he's saying that they had no restraint. They had no sense of morality, really, that focused on their hearts uh, and, and what was inside. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37 talks about liars. He talks about how their word was really not enough. And so they didn't tell the truth. Paul deals with this too in, in the book of Ephesians. Stop lying, start telling the truth. But as Jesus was dealing with even these religious leaders, they were, they were not holding to the truth. Not just of God's word, but they were liars. You couldn't trust their word, you see. Well, he talks about that in the positive a little bit later, but then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 43, he talks about vengeance. Notice what he says, you know, about retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn uh, to him uh, the other also. What is he saying? Don't be a person who wants to retaliate. You know, get rid of this whole thinking of, you know, vengeance. We, we spiritualize it sometimes. You know, we say, well, I, I know that, I, you know, I, I shouldn't, you know, want vengeance. But, Lord, you've said in your word, vengeance is mine. Thus say the Lord, would you get them for me? And so he's saying, you know, don't have this attitude when someone even hurts you or harms you, I'll get you. You ever think that? I'll get you. I don't get you. Somebody else will get you. It's going to come back and bite you. See? Instead of really praying and asking God for forgiveness and help in regards to that. Well, he deals with that. He talks about uh, ostentatious displays of religious activity in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 7 uh, or chapter 6. He talks about how people were giving. These were acts of righteousness. They were giving, but they weren't really giving to God. They were giving so that they would, uh, you know, get the praise of men. He talks about prayer in that same way, that they were praying and fasting and, and making sure everyone knew what they were doing spiritually so that they would be praised uh, of men. And so what Jesus is dealing with here is this, this that you're people-focused. You're not God-focused. Then he talks about materialism in, in chapter uh, 6 as well, beginning in verse 19, verse 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves uh, treasures in heaven. And so, you know, what was their focus? Materialism, you know, really became their life, their God. And that's what, uh, you know, they were focused on. And so he, he deals with this whole issue of materialism. He talks also in this chapter and in the beginning of chapter 7 on how they, had, they distrusted God's goodness. So these people who weren't true followers, who didn't have genuine faith, didn't view God as a good God. And so you remember in chapter 7, the beginning, maybe verses 1 through 7, he talks about how good God is, and he even says this, that too often... You, you're thinking of God this way, that if a child asked for a piece of bread and was starving and hungry, would a good God or a good father give him a stone? And so these individuals uh, really had a, a distrust of, of God's uh, goodness. They, they felt that you couldn't trust God, and probably some felt that there wasn't even a God. Well, then in chapter 7 and verse 12, they weren't treating people correctly. 
They weren't treating people with love and care and mercy and grace. They, they were uh, treating uh, people, you know, in unkind ways. They weren't doing good things for people. And so we have the, the uh, uh, golden rule. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, they weren't discerning of good and evil. That, that was all mixed up in their lives. What's good? What's evil? What's right? What's wrong? And so he, he uh, talked to them about how, you know, oftentimes they presented what was wrong as what was good. And then he talks about that again in, uh, you know, in, in this chapter. But notice that then in verse 15, he talks about how they covered up their weaknesses instead of dealing with them and, and bringing them to God. And then they were building their lives on man's philosophies, not God's. That's what he's dealing with when he talks about building your house on the rock and not on the sand. And so they were building their lives on man's philosophies. And we do that today. You know, maybe it's your own views, your own philosophies. Maybe, you know, your song, theme song of your life is, uh, you know, I did it my way. Uh, maybe you're building your life on uh, Dr. Phil's way. Maybe you're building your life on some great philosopher or some religious leader, but not on Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus also in this account deals with what true righteousness is all about. He, he deals with what, you know, what is the proof of genuine faith in God. So he talks about evidences of faith that should be seen in us and will be seen in those who participate in the kingdom of God. Now look at it briefly with me. If you go back to chapter 5, what does Jesus tell us? That if you, true, if you have genuine faith, you're going to shine as lights in a dark world. And so he deals with that, of course, uh, in chapter 5 and verse 16. What else does he tell us in there in regards to light that we're to be light and what? Salt. What's he saying? Well, as true believers, we need to be making a difference in this world. Are we shining as light? Are we having an impact like salt in this world that is in total darkness and decay? Well, then he tells us in verse 24 that we strive, if we have genuine faith, for reconciliation with everyone. I've heard uh, sometimes around here that, we hear, that you hear too much about reconciliation. Well, I want you to know what, notice again what Jesus has to say here about reconciliation. He, he deals with it in chapter 5 and verse 24. Notice what, what he says. He says, he talks about in verse 23 about offering a gift at the altar to God, in other words, worshiping God. And uh, he says, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so what's Jesus all about? Reconciliation. We're separated from God and, and we need to be reconciled to him. But God wants us reconciled to one another as well. He is not pleased and happy when believers are not living in unity and harmony when we're fighting each other and hating each other and, and not able to work together. So Jesus says now, first, and he's talking to, you, to those who are followers of his, he's talking here to those who are worshiping and leaving gifts at the altar. Go first and reconcile to your brother. You think it's important? Well, it's enough for Jesus to put it in his sermon here in regards to proof that you have genuine faith. Well, then he tells us, 
that uh, we need to restrain inordinate desires. He talks in verse 30 about self-control in regards to, uh, you know, issues of, uh, of sex and so forth. We need to be individuals who exercise self-control in a world that's exercising absolutely no self-control. And so he tells us as believers, there needs to be evidence of that faith, and part of that ev evidence is that uh, we, we're going to exercise self-control. He tells us in verse 37 that we need to stand on our word, that we, we need to be truth-sayers, and we need to be trusted, we need to tell the truth, we need to be men and women of integrity. I've told you this story before about a good friend of mine who, who uh, lived in Binghamton. He had a really big business, and, and his company had a number of different businesses, and all the businesses were started by his dad. When I, when I was friends with this, this uh, guy, his dad was really old. But I remember his dad telling me one time about how many years ago when he, would, he started these businesses. And they were big businesses even when he started them. He said, we, we wouldn't go to a lawyer or anything. We would make an agreement and we would shake hands. Do that today, you're a fool. And unfortunately, that's true even with Christians. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we need to be individuals who tell the truth, that we're trusted, that we're people of integrity. Then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he tells us that, that if you're truly a believer, you love even our enemies. And so he tells us that, you know, in essence, that the Spirit of God dwells within us, and we need to love, and we need to love everyone. Not just those who love us, not just those who are in our families, but we're to love everyone. I mean, that, that's, that's not easy, is it? I mean, let's be honest. We're talking earlier today, even before the service, about how in John chapter uh, 1, talks about Jesus and how he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And I honestly believe my, my good friend David Anderson and I were having a talk about this recently, and I said this, I don't think you can have grace without truth. But you can't have truth without grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so when that's true, yes, we tell the truth, but we love people. We're gracious people. And uh, we reach out to meet the needs of people. Well, he tells us in chapter 6 and verses 2 to 4 that we're not takers, we're givers. So when we have genuine faith, we're givers. We're looking to be compassionate to people. We're looking to meet their needs, to help people. And uh, we give. Well, then he tells us in verse uh, 5 and 6 uh, of chapter 6 that we privately are devoted to God in prayer. So we know that uh, we need to depend on God and uh, we need to uh, go to God in prayer and uh, we're not doing it to impress anyone. We just desperately need God. Well, num uh, number eight, if you're keeping uh, track here, th they are indifferent to earthly treasures. So those that Jesus was really criticizing, their, their focus was on materialism. What he's saying here is this, that, that true Christians are indifferent to earthly treasures. They're not affected by it. They might have it, they might not, but that's not, not the issue. The issue is that uh, that's not uh, what they're, they're focused on. 
uh, earthly treasures. Well, then he talks about how we're to depend on the Heavenly Father, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 and 32. Notice what Jesus says there. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows what you need, or that you need them all. And so his focus then is on this, that we are dependent on our Heavenly Father. Therefore, we don't need to have lives that are filled with fear and anxiety and worry and all of that because we know that God is good, that God loves us, and that God will take care of us. That's genuine faith, you see. Well, then he tells us in verse 33 of chapter 6 that if we have genuine faith, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things are going to be added to us. See, God's not happy if you were to list, and, and I know you wouldn't do this if you had a piece of paper, but if you looked at your life or someone else evaluated your life, would they, would they see that Jesus is number one in your life or in the top ten? You realize that Jesus is not happy to be in the top ten? He has to be number one. That's why he's saying here, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things uh, will be taken care of. Well, then in chapter 7 and verses 1 through 8, he's saying this, that if you have genuine faith, you're not judgmental and critical of everything. You're not looking for the, the uh, speck in everybody else's eye when there's a beam in yours. So genuine faith uh, helps us to uh, not be judgmental and critical and legalistic. Then in chapter 7 and verse 12, on the positive, he says this, you have to do good to all. So when you have genuine faith, you're going to be as compassionate as Jesus was. You're going to meet the needs of people like Jesus did. And so we have that golden rule that is evidence of our genuine faith. It's not a golden rule to get us to heaven. And so he talks about, you know, how we're to do good to all. We're to, to do things that are profitable to everyone. And then in verses 12 and 13, he says that we need to choose to follow Jesus. Now, there's two issues here we talked about. You need to choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need to realize that you're a sinner because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need to realize that there's only one way to heaven. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So you need to choose Jesus to forgive you of your sins and choose Jesus. You have a relationship with God, and when you die, you go to heaven. That's a choice. But there's also this choice that, that I think he deals with in this, same, in this same passage that we need to choose, we need to make decisions based on the truth of God's word so that we're honoring and glorifying God in all that we say and do. There's choices that we make all the time and we need to choose what God wants us to do. Well, then in chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, he tells us that we need to be discerning. So when we have genuine faith, we're going to discern between what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. And then last, but surely not least, because they're all built on, I think, this foundation in verse 24 to 27, that we need to build our life on the Lord and his word. 
So in verse 28 and 29, you know, we find that Matthew wants us to realize that the crowd had a certain response. They were in awe. They were amazed at the teaching of Jesus. When you continue to read the Gospel of Matthew, you find out that his true followers were also amazed and in awe, but they moved on from just being amazed and in awe. They accepted what Jesus taught, and they acted on it. So the question comes as we conclude, you know, what's our response? What does God want us to do uh, with the Sermon on the Mount? What does God want us to do with 25 weeks of this? Well, we need to be amazed at the teachings of God. But we also need to accept it and we need to act on it. And so God's word must move from our heart, our heads, to our hearts, to our hands. And what's the key to that? Well, I think the key to that is really commitment. You know, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you make a commitment in regards to salvation, that you're going to trust Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and nothing else. But I think as believers, we need to make a commitment, too, that we're going to live by God's word. It's a commitment. It's saying, you know, I don't want just information and knowledge in my head. I want it to come down and grip my heart. And I want what I, my heart grips to be seen in my hands. In other words, what we believe must be seen in how we behave. You see, that's the response God wants. He doesn't want the response just of the Pharisees and the scribes. Oh, wow, this was quite a teaching. He doesn't want us to just stand in awe and be amazed. He wants us to accept it and to act on it. He wants us to make a commitment to him. Let's pray.